Hi, everybody. Welcome to the second episode of Expiration Date. The title of this episode is another borrowed line from Brian Stevenson. It's better to be rich and guilty rather than poor and innocent. I'm David. I'm Michelle. I would like to start out by thanking everyone who reached out with feedback from our first episode. And if you haven't had a chance to listen to the first episode, go ahead and stop this one and check out episode one, An Innocent Man. Turns out most people would love to hear more from David. Don't know what David heard, but yeah, a lot of more let's hear more of David's voice. Turns out my nervous energy is just as off-putting to friends and family as it is to me. And I'm going to have to back up here and say, I just don't see it as nervous energy. I read it as passion. Passion. So in today's episode, see if you can pick up on the passion in Michelle's voice. Okay, I want to clarify a few things from our last episode, and I want to bring up two new things. A lot of people ask me, what do I mean, or what do we mean by access point? And I think of a Brian McLaren video that I saw recently before we started recording where he was amplifying the voice of a black female author. This was a couple of weeks after George Floyd. And the Zoom call was made up of entirely white women over the age of 60, and they were furiously taking notes in their notepads. So I think that a lot of white people are ready to listen. I think a lot of white people are ready to understand what's going on. Because one thing that I don't know that people of color may realize is white families do not have to teach their children this stuff. For black and brown kids, it's a matter of safety. For white children, we don't, unless our parents just do it because they know to or they, it's important to them, it's not something that we have to do. So a lot of us don't understand the language. There's usually a, a turning point in when we're growing up or, or and when we're learning where we've, we realize that where we've been is not necessarily the universal norm for all the people and I think that's a jumping off point point. Mm-hmm. and maybe it's a, a, the eyes are open or, or, or turn, like I said a turning point and maybe that's what you're talking about for access point mm-hmm. and I, I just want I, and I want something too because when I started diving into a lot of this stuff a lot of these voices are very progressive and progressive language you have to know they're, they're not going to sit there and define every term for you they're not going to go when they say things like criminalization of poverty or Mass incarceration, they expect you to know what they mean, and sometimes we don't know what they mean. So I want to kind of open up the floor for that and, like you said, provide a jumping-off point. And in the first episode that I've listened to a very reasonable amount of times, very reasonable. How many? I'm not going to tell you. More than 10? Yes. Okay, keep going. <laughs> I I'm, Passion. It's passion. I messed up the wording on the bail arraignment plea deal stuff, but we're going to totally clear that up this episode. I want to bring up Brianna Taylor because I had someone reach out to me and ask who that was and um, why she was in the news. So I believe seven months ago, seven months ago, there was an episode of police violence where they were serving a no-knock warrant on what they thought was a place that would contain drugs. And so they broke into her house and her boyfriend, they were asleep at the time, it was midnight, it was middle of the night, her boyfriend started shooting at the intruders in his home. So all three police officers unloaded their weapons and fired well over two dozen rounds. And Brianna Taylor was killed. She was asleep at the time. 
she was a, not that it matters because she was a person, whether she was a pillar of the community or not, but she was a pillar of her community. She worked as an EMT. Reason she was so tired and she didn't wake up when people broke in is because she was, had just finished her shift, I believe, after like a 12 hour shift. And so anyway, and normally things like this happen all the time in America. We're going to talk about this, that this episode, but normally this kind of stuff goes away. But the way that information has been released and the way that protesters have been demanding that something happen to those officers has kept the case in the news. And much like most of the things that I research in this podcast, turns out the guy that they were looking for didn't live there. The guy that they were looking for was locked up in jail already at the time. They offered that man who that they were actually looking for, that they had in custody, they offered him no jail time. He was facing 10 years in prison. They offered him no jail time if he would say that Brianna was part of his drug kingpin, and he refused to his credit. It also came out that the police were working with a real estate company to gentrify that area because the only way that they could force, they tried to force all the tenants to move out, but it wasn't working. And so basically it was a, it was a hit. And I don't mean that like that they went in there intending to kill her. I mean that they went in there to get those people to leave. I spoke to an old retired sheriff's deputy and investigator about no-knock warrants Mm -hmm. because I, I was also questioning how this could happen. And how did he put it? He said, they're common, but you have to have all the information beforehand. Like Mm -hmm. for him to, for him to ever get a no-knock warrant, it would have to go in front of a judge and all the information would be double checked and, and the the T's would be crossed, the, the I's would be dotted and it would be almost a flawless execution of a warrant Mm -hmm. which really makes me question if this retired detective for the sheriff's department says that no-knock warrants are something that they take with great legitimacy how did this one go so wrong and i think it's because that the purpose behind it was deeply flawed because it wasn't to stop crime it was to gentrify an area and i should say not that that's all alleged at this point um and also one thing i forgot to mention is the boyfriend that had the gun legally and returned fire at the police. A lot of people have been saying that he knew that they were police. And if you listen to the 911 call, which I have done, and if you don't believe me, I recommend that you listen to it. He did not know that they were police officers, and it's very obvious based on the 911 call. And But anyway, the reason I wanted to bring it up this episode is because a lot of people are talking about her because the decision came down that they are going to charge one of the officers because some bullets went into the other apartments. So they are not charging him with murder and they are not charging the other two officers that were there. He's getting charged with wanton endangerment. Wanton endangerment. Which I think is a felony. Yeah. And it just shows that the state cares more about drywall than they do about a woman's life. Shout out to the protesters in Louisville. You're doing a great job. Keep doing what you're doing. You're the reason that this is happening. They would have buried this a long time ago if it hadn't been for you. So we appreciate it. And also, one thing I'd like to note is they had arrested the boyfriend and put him in jail for murder, attempted murder of a police officer. They would have buried him if it hadn't been for the protests. And those charges have been dropped. Yes. They let him, they released him and dropped the charges, but he would have never seen the light of day again. And my big question, and I hope that we'll eventually get to this on the podcast, is how can 
if a man who legally owns a gun and in a stand your ground state, Mm -hmm. if he fires upon someone who doesn't identify themselves coming through the door, how can he be charged as, as that? Well, in this particular case, they said that there was officer misconduct because the officers did actually announce themselves and the police union and the police department is condemning that, which is just insane to me. So that's how they're, that's how they had. What do you mean condemning that? They, they're saying that they made a mistake by announcing themselves. Oh. So they're putting a spin on it that the boyfriend knew that it was police officers and they shot anyway and all this stuff that just doesn't ring true to me. Hmm. And the uh, last thing I want to bring up before we move on to the rest of the episode, it also came out very recently that Border Patrol ICE, which we talked about in the first episode that we're not going to consider as part of the carceral state, even though you could make a very decent argument that we should. It's just too big. And we're going to talk about it more in season two. It came out that they are performing forced hysterectomies. hysterectomies. Sorry, this gets to me. They are sterilizing women at the border. And I just want to be clear, seeking asylum in the United States is not a crime. Coming to the border of the United States is not a crime. And this is some Nazi-level shit that they're doing. And I, I w- want you to be scared, but I also want you to understand that though this is horrifying, we have been doing this in prisons for years, where women are coerced into sterilization, or sometimes just forced. So we're going to talk about that more in a different episode. So stay tuned. Was it ever proven, or are they just still doing the investigation based off the whistleblower? I think it's still whistleblower complaint at this point because it's gotten so much purchase in the news i don't doubt that it's true Mm. and i think they have photos okay but i'm not positive about that well something to to research for the next for upcoming definitely definitely and because because when we do the military industrial complex is when we're going to talk about the border but that's a different thing quit hitting it season two (laughs) sorry We heard we also need to lighten the mood a little bit, so we're going to introduce fun segments throughout the episodes. So if things get dark, don't worry. We may just jump into fun fact with Michelle and David, or whoops, it's a Nazi when we quote politicians. So stay tuned for that. So in episode one, we went over a very brief history of the death penalty and a very brief history of how we got where we are politically. In this episode, I'm going to try and kind of very briefly tell you where we are now. So let's start at the beginning. The first encounter with the criminal legal system is usually the police. So when I say over-policing or criminalization of poverty, do you know what I mean? Let's talk about some history. As we learned in the last episode, throughout the 70s and 80s, local law enforcement becomes flush with cash and power. The opportunity to take some of that cash causes an explosion of police science. Uh, There's some important landmark studies that we can link in the show notes that changed the way police are trained and the way that they think. What do you mean by police science? Well, it's I made it up. It's people that are looking to be a part of what's becoming the police industrial complex because there's all these private organizations and private investigators. Not I don't know. I mean private investigator like a PI. I mean like private people who become an expert in a certain area and then will train police officers, which is usually a private company or private organization. So a lot of study on behaviors and how to get the best outcomes for 
What makes the most money mm-hmm. in policing? Yeah, what makes the most money in policing, what keeps police officers the safest, not that I'm saying that's a bad thing, but the way that they do it, it's at the expense of the community. And what is the most effective form of policing, which to them is the most amount of arrests and most amount of criminal charges. We see what's called broken windows policing become the norm. This means that officers are taught that signs of poverty are signs of crime. If you see a house with broken windows, bad people live there. Another study shows that the way to deal with high crime, meaning high poverty, is to drastically increase contact with police. So we see what is called over-policing. We see things like stop and frisk, which is where a police officer can use his his or her discretion to stop you for basically any reason. They make it very easy to justify. And they can stop you and they can search you. And that's supported in a court of law, right? Yes. Yeah. The, it all went all the way to the Supreme Court in the... Seven... No, it was later than that. Maybe it was the 80s. Went all the way to the Supreme Court and stop and frisk became a thing. You've probably heard about it recently because of Mike Bloomberg's campaign. This type of policing targets poor black and brown people, and the results are violent. I'm going to throw some numbers at you. In England and Wales, from 1990 to 2014, there were 24 fatal police shootings. Over 24 years, 24 people were killed by the police. In 2015, here in America, 29 people were killed in January. In the first 24 days of January, we didn't even make it all the way through January. My question is, with in England and Wales, do the, the majority of the officers carry firearms? In England, I know that they don't. I'm not positive about Wales, but I doubt it. There has been one fatal police shooting in Iceland in the 71 years since it became an independent nation. In Australia, there were 94 police killings from 1992 to 2011, over 19 years. American police killed 97 people in March of 2015. I could list these out for the rest of the episode. The numbers that police kill in America are staggering. And the other problem is there is no centralized database of police violence. We know about this because of the hard work of journalists, and they are finding these numbers rising. This is getting worse. And I'm going to tell you something, and I want you to really listen to me. The police kill a 1,000 people every year in the United States of America, and that adds up. So it means since the year 2000, we've lost almost 20,000 people to police violence. These are people that have not been convicted of a crime. These are people that have encounters with the police, and they die. We see that police departments are increasingly trying to distance themselves from these deaths. For example, I don't know if you guys remember before the viral video of George Floyd, the police had already released a statement that he died in custody due to a heart condition. And that happens with almost every single one of these cases if it starts to get purchased in the news. We see things released about the victim's crime history of crime, which we saw with George Floyd. We saw that he'd been accused of robbery, and that information comes from the police departments. They don't. That's not available to reporters. That's released to reporters. So we know that the first step in the criminal legal system is targeted at poor people, it's targeted at brown people, and it's extremely violent. Black and brown people are far more likely to be stopped and far more likely to be killed. We're going to go into further detail about the criminalization of race and poverty, but this gives you a brief overview and some context. Now, after contact with police, if you are not injured 
you are either arrested, cited, or let go. In a different episode, we're going to talk about citations because that makes up the bulk of new criminal cases in the United States, mainly traffic. But let's say you were arrested. Once you are arrested, you go to jail where you sit and wait for a judge. The judge decides whether to set bail or not. Bail is meant to be an insurance policy. That means when you return to court, you get the money back. It's designed to be an insurance policy, not a punishment. These people have not been convicted of a crime. Bail is, if you can pay this a dollar amount, you go home to await charges. If you cannot pay, you stay in jail to await charges. This is what we mean when we say disproportionately affects the poor. We learned in the first episode that millions of people go to jail every year. At any given time in America, 60% of the people in jail have not been convicted of a crime. Just think about that for a minute. If you can pay, you can go home. If you cannot pay, you stay in jail. And there has been study after study after study showing that people who come from home to court have much better outcomes than people that come from jail to court. So when we say criminalization of poverty, this is another part of what we mean. It makes sense. Just on the perception of perception of persons coming from jail versus coming from home, like mm-hmm. the refreshness, the clothes that you wear, the way that you carry yourself. And it's like, what bothers me is that it, it's not even and it's not equal and it's not fair. No, it's not. Cause it's just saying, if you can pay your way out, that's great. If you can't, you stay in jail and it slowly drains money and labor from the poor as well. A lot of people say, well, what about bail bondsmen? Can't you just use that and to get to go home? Let's say your bail is set for $1,000, which is not unusual at all. The average bail in America is $10,000. So let's say your bail is set at $1,000. If you can come up with that money, you go home. If you show up for court, you get that money back. If not, you can try bail bondsmen. They pay the full $1,000 to the court and you pay them a percentage, but you lose that money. And I want you to remember at this point, you have not been convicted of a crime. You will not get that money back. So this system is set up to disproportionately affect even poorer people. And then if you can't come up with the percentage that the bail bondsman sets, you stay in jail, which is a drastic, I mean, it's a huge number of people. Can you imagine in the time of COVID when they're not having trials face to face? If you're sitting in, in jail because you couldn't pay $500 to the bail bondsman and you're there for months and you haven't even been charged. So you're there for months, you're yeah. away from your family, you've lost your job if you had a job in the first place, because what place would hold your job for months if you're in jail? And even if they, if, it, if, you're, if you're lucky enough to have a job that would be held for you, you're not getting paid. It's, again, set up to disproportionately affect the poor. And it's wrong. That's wrong. I mean, you, I, don't, I, I would love for somebody to send me an email to try to justify that. So then, you're arrested, and bail is set or not. And posted or not. Sometimes they release you without bail, but in most cases, it's either pay bail or stay in jail. I really didn't want that to rhyme, but I couldn't think of another way to say it. Then you await charges. And remember, at this point in the process, no one has been convicted of a crime. Okay, charges. We're not really going to get into the difference between state and federal charges because I don't really think it's necessary for the scope of this podcast. But I can provide you with resources if you want to know more about that. If you cannot post bail or you do not get the option, you're held in jail 
for days or weeks before your arraignment, but most of the time it's hours to days, this is where we see a massive amount of power shift from the police to the prosecutor. For the purposes of this podcast, we're going to use the term prosecutor interchangeably with district attorney, but that's not always the case. Prosecutors have a lot of power in our criminal legal system. Prosecutors go on to be judges, governors, Supreme Court justices. Just turn on CNN and see how many times you hear the phrase former prosecutor or former DA, Kamala Harris, John Kerry, Amy Klobuchar. All of these people are former prosecutors. They are overwhelmingly white and they are overwhelmingly male. 95% of elected prosecutors are white and 79% are male. Many prosecutors are elected, not always, usually on a state level. Federal, federal courts are different. In many states, this is an elected position, but a staggering number run unopposed. Between 1996 and 2006, 85% of prosecutors ran unopposed. Prosecutors get most of the funding, and they have great relationships with law enforcement and judges. The only numbers they care about are conviction rates. They want numbers of convictions. So the prosecutor decides what crimes to charge you with. So let's say you get your day in court. This is not a trial. This is an arraignment. You are herded through like cattle because there are hundreds of millions of cases per year. And our justice system is not set up to be fast. Sometimes you have your own attorney. Sometimes you do not. We'll talk about that more later in the episode. And the judge and the prosecutor and your attorney work out whether or not you're going to take a plea deal or go to trial. They always get your consent on that first, right? Yes. Um, so usually it's with your attorney, the prosecutor, and the judge. Now, in some cases, if you can't afford an attorney and it's not a case where you have a danger of going to prison, sometimes you do not get a court-appointed attorney. Are you expected but, to represent yourself in your arraignment? I think the prosecutor just comes to you and says, do you accept this? And you say yes. I think that's the process. So what happens if you say no? Do you think you're appointed an attorney at that point? Because, I mean, I guess it would go to trial after that, right? I would, I don't think that, I don't think that, I, I don't, I don't know that that can happen. I don't know that you can. You can choose to, to represent yourself. It. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I don't know. At least you can on TV. When I say day in court, I'm talking about where you're deciding to either take a plea deal or start the steps to go to trial. Plea deals end most cases. 94% of cases do not go to trial in the United States. The system is not designed for a trial. It's designed for plea deals. The defense attorneys are overwhelmed with cases, especially public defenders. So this process is, is incentivized to be fast. There are hundreds of millions of cases in criminal courts every year in America. Let's talk about criminal charges for a minute. A misdemeanor is a crime that should be punished for less than a year, and a felony is for more than a year. That's really the only difference, and that's up to the discretion of the prosecutor and the judge. I find that to be very interesting. If it's less than a year than and more than a year because of the implications of a misdemeanor versus a felony, if you get charged with a felony, I guess it's just severity of crime. Yeah, and it's and a lot of it is just left up to the discretion of the prosecutor and the judge, which we're going to talk about that more later too. But So you can... Does it happen in the moment of um, arraignment? I, I believe so, yes. Um, that's when they, because the prosecutor decides what charges to bring and the judge agrees, if I'm understanding things correctly. We put a lot of value in the fact that the prosecutor and the judge are fair, committed people. 
Yes. Especially because of the implications of a felon. You can't vote. You can't own a gun. It's hard to get a job. I mean, if there's not some structured way, if it's at the discretion, how? And that's one thing we talk about with our guest later in the episode is that so much of this is up to the discretion of the police officer, the discretion of the judge, and the discretion of the prosecutor that we've learned are overwhelmingly white and overwhelmingly male. How can we be surprised at the outcomes when it looks like that? (laughs) Once you're charged, you either accept the plea deal or you don't. This is the bulk of our criminal legal system. The Appeal, Justice in America, has a great episode on this. Um, Their entire podcast is fantastic, Justice in America, is great resource if you want to learn more or if you want to go deeper than we're going. If you don't take the plea deal, there are several more steps where we try to get you to accept the plea deal. Eventually, you go to trial. We're going to talk more about the trial in a later episode, but from what I can find, if you do make the system go to trial, it is incredibly punitive. Have you heard the phrase on a TV show, like if you don't take this plea deal, you risk going to trial. Why is it a risk? And from what I can find, if you make them do it, it is remarkably punitive. Are you saying that if you make the prosecutors do more work by going to trial, they're going to take it out on you by a heavier sentence? Yes. So it's, it's again, it's kind of like the, it's a, it's a way over exaggeration of what you face with the bail bondsman. You either take the plea deal lose the time and move on and make rebuild your life somehow or you gamble on a trial and can face much harsher sentences or potentially being exonerated. Comes down to a lot of self-conviction on what you choose and situations too. Like Yeah. There was a moment in Serial, I don't know if you remember, I told you that was my favorite true crime podcast, where Sarah Koenig who was the host of the show, asks a man who's been imprisoned for decades for a crime that he may not have committed. And she asked him, she said, what would advice would he give to his younger self or another innocent person that would charge with murder? His advice was to take the plea deal that they originally offer you. I didn't understand it at the time, but now I do. He would have been out on good behavior in probably around 20 years. And this just seems crazy to me that that would have been the better choice. What a, an amazing place of privilege that that I can sit here and say, you know, if I know I'm right and I know I'm right, I can do this and come out ahead. When I don't think that's reality for everyone. Yeah. I think that people who are caught up in this system realize how bad it is and their families have been caught up in it for generations. So I think that they understand that sometimes you just have to cut your losses and try to rebuild your life somehow, even though after you've been convicted of a crime, it's difficult to find a place to live. It's difficult to get a job. You can't travel. You can't go to school. After the plea deal or trial, it's either probation or jail, jail or prison, and then parole. In many states during this process, you are not allowed to vote after this. In some places permanently. Again, this is millions and millions of people Your children can get taken away from you. You get locked up in incredibly violent places with terrible conditions and face horrific trauma. Some people might say, well, then don't commit a crime. So let's talk about what crime means. I'm going to throw a lot of scenarios at you, and I want you to just think about these. And these are all 
real life examples that I've pulled from different stories, podcast books, etc. You let your dad take some of your pain pills because he can't afford to go to the doctor and he accidentally ODs because there's no doctor involved and he dies, you can get charged with murder. You let your friends borrow your car and they commit a crime, you can be charged with that same crime. You are sleeping on someone's couch and there is a drug raid conducted on the house, you are charged with that crime. You're asleep in your room with your girlfriend. People break into your house and kill her and you shoot back. What if it happens to be cops? You can get charged with attempted murder. A cop involved in a high-speed chase that does not involve you because you're sitting at a stoplight and they hit your car and your one-year-old is in the backseat, is killed by that cop car, and they charge you with negligent homicide because they said the chest strap was not pulled up high enough. You have a miscarriage at home. You violate a city ordinance that's not a jailable offense and you don't pay the fine. You can face jail and criminal charges. And then people say, okay, okay, I see that this is bad, but what about people that really do commit terrible crimes? What about people that really do murder or hurt other people? I'm going to borrow from Brian Stevenson again. In Just Mercy, he tells the story of Herbert Richardson. Herbert Richardson put a bomb on the front porch of his ex-girlfriend's house that killed an eight-year-old little girl. By any definition, he's a monster. What if I told you that Herbert, after a miserable life of severe childhood drama, joined the military, where he was sent to Vietnam. He was a bomb specialist, and he had a disastrous mission where his entire platoon was killed, and he had a severe head injury. He woke up, and all of his brothers in arms were scattered around him, and instead of helping him, he was sent home. He goes to the VA and meets a nurse, and for the first time in his life, someone is kind to him, and he falls deeply in love with her, and they begin dating. As his symptoms of trauma and head injury and mental illness worsen, she has to leave him. He is alone and scared. His broken mind comes up with a plan. He's going to win her back by dismantling a bomb on her porch that a crazy person put there. He will build it and put it there and then wait in the bushes until she sees it, then come to her aid and rescue her and she will love him again. If you just read the headline, you don't realize that he suffered major injuries while trying to get to the little girl that accidentally picked up the bomb. You don't know that he gave her cereal that morning and let her watch his television because he knows her. She is his neighbor. You don't know that her family did not want Herbert killed because that is not justice. Answering violence with violence is not justice. And to quote the man again, we are more than the worst thing we have ever done. I have given you a remarkably simplistic summary of this system. At every level, there is misconduct by those in power. Police shoot people. These are the cases that go viral. But what about when they lie and terrorize you into confessing? That's not illegal. This happens all the time in the United States. You can Google it. It's very, very common. What about the prosecutor that withholds evidence? What about the judge that gets kickbacks from private corporations? What about the private corporations that weasel into every step of this process to nickel and dime poor communities to death? Corruption is rampant. So the next time you think about a high crime area, maybe think about your city courthouse or your police station. 
rather than the communities that they terrorize. The number one indicator of crime is lack of a job and lack of an education. This system robs people of both. After you've been convicted of a crime, you can't find a place to live. You can't go to school. You can't get a job. You can't travel. This is a bad system designed to keep people caught up in it. Before we start this segment, I wanted to add a trigger warning because I'm going to be honest about some of the conversations that I've had with people. In some of those conversations, people bring up some pretty racist things. And while we do want to provide a safe place for people to learn and grow and do better, I also want to add that trigger warning in case, you know, you've been traumatized by racism. This is our last segment. You can just skip to the end. This segment is called Conversations with People Since I Started This Project a Few Years Ago. If you and I have had this conversation and you think, is she talking about me? The answer is no. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about somebody else for sure. I hear this one a lot. Well, black people commit more crimes. And I want you to listen to me. They do not commit more crimes. They are targeted by the police. They are over-policed and overcharged with crime. Police departments report crime statistics. The kid on the street corner that wears a hoodie, yes, that is a reason they can stop you, and has a dime bag of weed, becomes a statistic. The white kid in his dorm room does not. I've heard this one from a few people, including the president. How can you say the system is racist? Cops kill a lot of white people, too. Actually, more white people. And there are two really horrible things about that. First off, cops should not kill anyone. Two, black people make up almost half of the police killings, but they only represent 13% of the population. So when we say it's extremely disproportionate, that's what we mean. What about victims? I hear this one a lot. Don't you care about crime victims? Well, the media loves the innocent victim that gets brutalized by a stranger, especially if it's a white female and a black or brown male. But these cases are remarkably rare. This is the Liddell Lee case that I heard about. Most of the time, the victim is the victim one week and the defendant the next. The vast majority of criminals are former victims of crime. I do care about the victims. The system does not. You can Google any organization that works for victims, and you can see that the system is just as horrific for victims as it is for criminals. I also hear this one a lot. Well, I know the system is bad, but America is better than anywhere else, and my answer for this is maybe it is for you. Most white Americans live in an all-white world. 70% of white people in America do not have a significant relationship with a person of color. And I want to ask you a few questions. Have you ever been to a black person's home? Work stuff does not count. Have you ever had a black person come to your home? Again, work stuff does not count. Have you ever worked for, not with, but for a non-white person? Do you have regular conversations with people of color outside of the workplace? If you cannot answer yes to some of these questions, you may need to ask yourself if you're listening to the voices you should be listening to. And this is the last one I hear a lot. Well, at least we're better than China. They have a million people locked up and they use them for slave labor. Oh boy, we'll double that number in your head and stay tuned, my friend. America has more incarcerated people than anywhere else on earth. The criminalization of our population is unequaled in the history of people. The U.S. makes up 4% of the world, but 25% of the prison population. This is utterly unique and unparalleled. We are the original 
carceral state. No other nation in human history has done this. Vladimir Putin locks up around 450 people per 100,000 in Russia. The U.S. locks up around 700. China has four times the population, but we have 500,000 more inmates than they do. And I know this may shock you, but they're used for slave labor here, too. I bring up Russia and China not to punch at them the way our corporate media does all the time, but because most Americans recognize those names. I had uh, planned on doing a second fun segment where I quote some politicians and then you guess which one's a fascist. But rather than do that, because of what's going on in the world right now, I'm just going to read you a quote from Tom Cotton. The claim that too many criminals are being jailed, that there is an over-incarceration problem in the United States, as law enforcement is only able to arrest or identify 19% of property crimes, 47% of violent crimes. If anything, we have an under-incarceration problem. Reduced sentencing for felons would destabilize the United States. I saw this in Baghdad. We've seen it again in Afghanistan. I find that quote from Tom Cotton to be lacking. Like, it sounds like, I mean, granted, he's a politician, but how does that compare to Baghdad and Afghanistan? Like, it doesn't... Yeah, and I think that historically in America, we have learned a lot from warfare. And as we've seen the militarization of police, which means police have military training, military weapons, military tactics... We're going to see more and more of this. Also, too, I think one thing you have to remember about Tom Cotton is he wrote an editorial in the New York Times where he called for the use of force against protesters using the United States military by any means necessary. So when he talks about the carceral state and he references what he did and saw in Afghanistan and Iraq, I think that that should scare you. So it definitely cast some light on what was done in Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah, if you ever want a fun time, Google um, pictures of Tom Cotton in um, Afghanistan and Iraq. There's one where he's like swimming in gold, literally, like just bars of gold. My question is, is if he can, in a very, you said it was the New York Times, right? Mm -hmm. New York Times is... Well, the under-incarceration was a different thing, but the the New York Times editorial was where he called for the... So the New York Times has more subscribers than any other newspaper in the the country. Mm Mm-hmm. And if he's able to write that and says that about citizens in the United States, I can only imagine, or I can imagine, I don't want to imagine what was done in his hands in Afghanistan and Iraq. And Tom, if you'd like to come on the podcast and defend your statement and your statistics, I would love to have you on. In this episode, I hope that you take away what it means to have contact with the criminal legal system and just a very basic vocabulary about the state of policing and the courts in America. And if there's anything that didn't make sense or anything you have questions about, you can reach out to us at our email address. It's expirationdatethepodcast at gmail.com. Yeah, or if you'd like to let us know that we got something wrong or you'd like to come on the podcast, please reach out to us. Take an opportunity to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you find your podcasts. Also, you can check us out on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N slash expiration date for some bonus content. Bonus content's available if you subscribe and support us.
Thanks. Thanks, everybody. We reached out to Tom Cotton's office for comment, and as the release of this episode, have not heard back from him or any of his people. Throughout this episode, we've been talking about our interview with local defense attorney Veranda Brasfield. We've decided to break this episode into two parts so that we can really appreciate that interview with her. So stay tuned for part two of our episode, Better to be Rich and Guilty Rather than Poor and Innocent.